0: Welcome back to another episode of Caught Looking a Baseball podcast hosted by myself, Max Greenfield, and my co host, Ryan Garcia. Today, we are joined by a very special guest, Stephen Rizzotto of Giants Baseball Insider, a beat writer for SF Bay. He also has uh, written work elsewhere and is the host of RizzoCast and Shutdown Inning. We discuss the Giants at very in depth, what it's like to be a young writer in the sports world, and also a little weird discussion of Moneyball to open up. So, Hope you guys enjoy the episode. And here is our interview with Steven Rizzotto. And we are back, joined by Giants Baseball Insider, Beat Writer, and cover for SF Bay, a writer, podcast, uh, a podcaster, a Rizzocast, and shutdown inning. Steven Rizzotto, how are you doing today? I'm
1: do I'm doing very well Max and Ryan. Uh, I appreciate you guys having me on and it's uh, it's going to be a blast looking forward to uh to talking some baseball with you guys. I'm excited.
0: Well, we are very excited to have you on. The Giants were in the news this week and you're kind of my my go-to guy when it comes to Giants news. Um but before we kind of get into the Giants and everything, I want to congratulate you on being the recipient of the 2023 Bill King scholarship uh from the Oakland Athletics this year. Uh how did that feel to to be recognized on field like that and you know, get the scholarship.
1: Yeah, that was a really cool day. Uh, that was a really cool day. I had known probably about a few months in advance. I got the email uh, a while back. I had applied. I think the I applied through somebody from San Francisco State University, where I'm still a student, undergrad. Uh, actually, sent out and and the she always sends out a bunch of emails about scholarships that you may want to put on your radar. And I applied. Uh, and then I guess they looked it over. I applied pretty late too. So I almost missed the cutoff. So that could have been bad. And, um, I ended up getting it and, uh, it's a $5,000 scholarship and it's going to help for my final, um, you know, final two semesters of college, which is going to be very helpful. And it just, yeah, it, it was really awesome to, to head out to an A's game. And, you know, I, I feel like so much has been said about the Oakland A's, um, and and so much could be said about the Oakland A's these past few months, but they were very accommodating. If there's one thing to say that I have to say about them that is on the non-baseball side, they were very accommodating and in, in very communicative towards me and, and my family. They let me and they let me get like 10 tickets out and it was a lot of fun. We had a good time. The A's ended up losing in extra innings, but it was cool before the game. They they had me with the big check. Um, and, and I thought, guys, it was a piece of cardboard. Uh, Cause you always see them. And I always thought that it was cardboard, but then yeah. you know, I had, I had a thought in my head about like, I'm going to get to take this thing home. Like for, for like, that was in my head the entire time going down there. I'm going to get to, where am I going to put it? And then when I got there and they handed it to me, it was a whiteboard. So the minute I saw that it was a whiteboard and it could be erased, I'm like, that thing's getting erased in 10 minutes after I put it down and I'm not going to take it home. Uh, but yeah, it, it was, uh, it was a very uh, cool experience, and uh, thank, thank you to the Oakland A's. And Ken Korak, who's now the Ford C. Frick Award finalist for the Oakland A's, he's um, one of the radio broadcasters. He presented the award. We had some conversation, and uh, it was a blast, and I'm really thankful. And uh,
0: can't wait to get out of college to kind of move things uh, faster and further. Uh, I, I have to admit that you're, you're kind of disappointing me by saying that the big check isn't real. I, I know. I like yeah. it would be such a cool thing to be like, "Hey man, like in your house, just like randomly, like twenty years down the line, there's just like a big check up on the wall." That would have been cool. But it now- kind of reminded
1: me of the soda scene in Moneyball, where it's like you got to pay for soda here. It's like welcome to Oakland. <laughs> and then uh, <laughs> when I got the scholarship, my friends were like, "Oh, you're gonna be the new highest, like you're like the top five highest paid person now on the on the in the organization." And I was like, "We gotta wait till after I get this, so I could speak publicly about it." But I guess that is the case, but <laughs> ouch, not wrong
0: though.
2: Yeah, maybe not. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I've, I've become very acclimated with Moneyball because we've, so I've made two trips to California over the last three years and I am not joking. I've watched the movie in consecutive for the entirety of the flight there and back. So whatever the hours would be for four trips, uh, either two or from California to New York. uh, That is the amount of times I've watched Moneyball on a plane consecutively, which I'm not sure I should be proud of, but yeah, no, that's definitely a thing.
1: Definitely. Yeah. People out here love it. Um, and then once I, I watched the movie before I read the book and then I read the book, I was like, this isn't the same at all. <laughs> it's like we want to we want to hear about like the 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 O2 draft or whatever draft class Moneyball highlighted. Like I want to hear about like the Nick Swishers more and like <laughs> all of that and why we shouldn't take a high school yeah. in the first round. Like instead, we're hearing about, uh you know, it was good. I mean, it, it was Hollywood, Hollywoodized. That's a word. right.
0: They spent Not no movie. time on the pitching in the movie, which is like one of the focal points of the book. Yeah, Miguel Tejada, Eric <laughs> yeah. Chavez, like those guys. Yeah, they they deserve a bigger part in that too. So,
2: yeah, I feel like the movie as a whole, like not that the movie isn't enjoyable. Don't like it. it, it look, it's a baseball movie. There is a like the theme of just how uh, process and all that stuff works, and I'm always gonna appreciate it for that. But it's really hard to watch the movie. And like not be like, man, they missed out on this or they missed out on that. And like, you know, the details because you've either a read the book or you've looked back or I mean, there's a lot of also just videos online talking about like the things they've missed or whatever that like break down the movie. And I'm not even a big movie person, but I love those like film analysis videos. I don't know what it is about that, but you turn that on when you're like eating something or like you're just doing work and it is like it's perfect. But yeah, no, it's definitely weirder to watch it after knowing all that stuff than it is beforehand. No doubt. And
1: and I feel bad for apparently Art Howe wasn't that bad. So um <laughs> he kinda had that hovering over him. Probably will hover over him for a while. So
2: the first question I had for you was You talked about your first day as a credentialed reporter at just 19 years old. Now, for clarification, I'm currently 19 years old. So I can't even imagine what that experience is like. Um, what were some of the biggest challenges in getting acclimated in that process? And especially, I mean, again, like I, I know you talked about how overwhelming it was. So I just kind of wanted to get your uh, first hand view on it.
1: It was, it was very like overwhelming and pretty much like the process was like very interesting. So SF Bay, the, the site that you know, thankfully and very graciously, uh took a chance on me at 19 years old. And uh, I've been with them the last two years as well, two full seasons as well. Um, they are big on giving kind of young college-aged writers a chance. So if you're young, your early twenties, late teens, I guess, uh, it's kind of similar to an internship where they give you a chance to get your feet wet. Um and uh and I had to, I I the the beat writer that they had before ended up taking a job with NBC Sports Bay Area as a content creator Taylor Worth and then uh, Taylor recommended me because he knew that I was kind of getting to the age where SF Bay uh, likes to kind of debut like the the point of SS Bay SF Bay from what I've been told is to move on from SF Bay um, and uh, I I wrote a few samples did a few games from home and then they realized that I was good apparently. Uh, they think. And uh, I was in the press box in 2021 during the Giants, very eventful 107 win season. And the first time that I was there, I was shaking, afraid. And I had always wanted to be in the press box. Like I played baseball through high school. um, And even in the back of my mind, like I was in journalism, like all through high school. Uh, Since I was like 12 years old, I wanted to be in the press box. And it was a surreal experience. And Kerry Crowley, who's a former Giants beat writer, first guy to come up to me and said, welcome, like shook my hand. It was awesome. And then it was weird because during the COVID season or during the COVID seasons, and I count 2021 as being a COVID season, the access still wasn't ideal, right? We were still doing Zoom post games, little bit Zoom games, but towards the end of the season, we kind of got uh, some dugout time with the manager. Uh, and then by the time 20, uh, 2022 came along, it was full clubhouse access. Then it was even more for me to learn. Uh, but I consider it like, you know, a work in progress. My writing is still a work in progress, but it was a nice stepping stone to kind of get those connections with the other media. There'd be times where I'm like more hyped to see the other Bay Area media that I grew up like watching and 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 listening and reading. Like, oh my God, Andrew Baggerly and Alex Pavlovich and like the the voices, like the the people that I follow and every and everybody who I try to be. Um and then it's like, oh, there's uh, Darren Ruff in the corner. you know. So it was a it was a cool experience and uh, still is a cool experience. And uh, I've gained very valuable connections from it. And it's not an ideal path at all. It's kind of a very lucky path. And I know a lot of people start off at high school and they go college, high school, they cover prep sports and then they work their way up. And uh, probably at some point I'm going to have to do that, too. And I understand. But uh, it's nice to have the experience.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, kind of talking about, like, you talk about, like, you're getting to see people that you grew up idolizing, right? Balancing your love for a team and then the objectivity of journalism, that can be really tough. So, you know, if you were to advise anything for journalists trying to toe that line as best as they can, what would it be?
1: It's not easy. Um, so again, yeah, I grew up a Giants fan, like since third grade, big Giants fan. And I lived through, I, I mean, the the dynasty years, so so so-called dynasty years happened the perfect time in my life, right? Um, middle school, like, you know, it was perfect. Everything was happening. The Warriors started winning and Bay Area was the place to be. But for the Giants, like, yeah, grew up watching them and and, you know, always root for them to do well. And then once you get in the press box, like there's the old saying, and someone wrote a book about it. There's no cheering in the press box. You can't do it. If you do it, you will get kicked out. And some people like, you know, I'm not going to name names or anything. If you guys want to know after all time, but some people are like, you know, some people will cheer and and it's like, or they'll go, ah, oh, when someone drops a ball on the outfield or something like that. Um, And for me personally, I've never had the inclination to do it. And it's something that has surprised me. I thought it would be worse. I thought it would be a harder transition, but not at all. Like I've, I found out that like, you know, my main objective is to write a good story and I want whatever's best for my story. And I found out that the best thing possible for my story is there's a seven nothing lead heading into the fifth inning. Like there's nothing better than that. Cause I could write what I want to write. Hopefully nothing. (laughs) The worst possible thing is like in an eight, nothing game and the other team hits a solo Homer and you have to find a way to like throw away sentence about an eighth inning home run. That means nothing in an eight to one game. So uh, I want what's best for the story. Like Jock Peterson hit three home runs against the Mets in 2022 uh, and it was the game of his life. He had like seven or eight RBIs or something like that. It was insane. Uh, the Mets tied the game against Tyler Rogers. Lindor hit like a triple down the line that cleared the bases. And I had written the Giants win. And then it was back and forth, back and forth and extra innings. And my deadline is 10 minutes after the final out. So I'm stressing out. Uh, and then Jock Peterson comes up again. And when he hits a home run the third for the third time, I'm not too happy because <laughs> I got to rewrite again. So it's it goes away pretty quickly. And then you realize that, and also being around the other people, like the questions that are asked during post game are much like cliche. Like, you know, you're using your curve a lot more, you know, you, how did you feel at the plate? Did you know it was going to leave the ballpark? Like before the game, that was your hotspot when you could ask some of the, the fun questions and, and, and more strategy stuff. So it was not a big transition.
0: It's good to hear that What wasn't too bad. I mean, if you go on Twitter, you'd think it would be like you take like a random person on Twitter and make them a beat writer. They probably really, really struggle. <laughs> yeah. They would not be and, able to put down that. And object. I've been told.
1: Yeah, I've been told like, oh, he's he's a company man. Like, what does that even mean? SF Bay is not even owned by the Giants. Like, I don't even know how I have a credential <laughs> company man. Like I could rip Like, there's so much to rip about the Giants that I feel like I've ripped in recent years. And still, like, you'll find a way to get called like a homer or something. But it's part of it. And. Like, I mean, I read, I've spent, you know, years reading the replies of some of my favorite beat reporters and like, I have fun doing it and it's carried over to me now. Like I have fun reading down mine and I don't have anybody blocked. Like that's something that I won't do. Like, unless you have to be really, really nasty to the point where like, I fear for my life, (laughs) but I don't have anybody blocked. I don't even have anybody muted. It's just, I, I read it and some of it's helpful to be honest. Constructive criticism is always great, but some of it's not and you just roll with it because at the end of the day, I don't want to tweet something and have someone not be able to see it if it's valuable information, no matter what our past is.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean that that's an interesting thought process. there you yeah, know there is constructive criticism always. you know, you can always get feedback from unexpected uh, places. but moving towards the Giants, you know, uh, they were playing solid baseball for a few months there kind of started to fall off at the end of the season. You know, Ryan and I both believe that they could have gotten it going and make the playoffs, but they ultimately didn't. And then Gabe Kapler kind of takes the fall for that. Do you think that Kapler should have taken the fall? Do you think that was the right decision? And, you know, now they've brought in Bob Melvin. Do you think he's the right guy to get this team back on track at the managerial spot?
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I think somebody had to pay for what has happened the last two years. And, and, there's been teams and I bring up Torrey Lovello as a good example. Like the Diamondbacks stuck with him. Like they could have easily looked at his losing seasons in Arizona and said, you know, we need a different change. But they saw something in him where they felt that he could lead the next great Diamondbacks team into a postseason run. And here he is. They stuck with him. And and I think just expectations are different in a place like San Francisco in a big market. And Giants fans are very persistent. And you know, it's just it's kind of like how St. Louis, like For all those years, there's always talk about St. Louis is never going to rebuild. We're not that type of organization that's going to tear it down. Uh, A lot of organizations are like that. And the Giants are like that, too. And a lot of it's very pride of their history and how they've done things. And speaking of their history and how they've done things, they've never fired. They haven't fired a manager in decades. Like 1985, 86 was like the last time they fired a manager. Uh, And they've had five managers since then, like. Roger Craig to Dusty Baker to Felipe Alou to Bruce Bochy Gabe Kapler that's not a lot of turnover. Yeah, you consider you know compared to AJ Preller but, or guys like AJ Preller, um, not a lot of tur- turnover. So they've always had stability in that position. And for me personally, I think every manager's a scapegoat to some or, to some extent. Like you're hired to be fired, and like Kapler is an interesting case because, you know, he wasn't liked from the start. Like a lot of people thought, Joe Espada should have been the Giants' manager. A lot of people thought the Giants forced Bruce Bochy back, even though he announced his retirement in spring training. <laughs> like they're not going to force someone out and say, "Here's 162 games." But that's a different story. Uh, and and Kapler just kind of was a different animal. Um, and with Farhan Zaidi at the helm, like he is a very sabermetrically minded, analytically driven person. And there's going to be that process in the managerial hire and. Gabe Kapler was their choice, and you know, one thing that maybe went against Gabe Kapler, not necessarily like in-game decisions, because at the end of the day, in my opinion, if you put, if you give all 30 managers the same game to manage, I think there's going to be so much overlap that people are going to be surprised. Like, I mean, you and I could, you know, the three of us could figure out when to pull a pitcher and when to have the right matchup, and you know, I, I think Brian Snickers looked at as a very unbelievable manager, but what is does he do? Like, he writes the same name. So, like, the, uh, my point here is not to rip on Brian Snicker because he could very well be a good manager. But my point is to say that it's very hard to evaluate a manager. And that's why they're, they're oftentimes scapegoated. Like, how many wins are they worth? Five wins? Four wins? How much did Bob Melvin play a part in San Diego being this amount of, you know, this big of a disappointment? Right. I mean, there were there were a World Series pick for many people. Was it Bob Melvin alone that prohibited this from happening? Like, I don't get that. Uh, And for Kapler's case, like the Giants had made an announcement saying like the chairman, Greg Johnson, said, you know, hey, we're going to we're committed to Farhan and Kapler. Um, And then within a matter of days, Farhan went on the radio and said, yeah, you know, Gabe, you know, he couldn't guarantee him his job on the radio. And then literally the next day, Kapler was gone. So, because they didn't want him to answer questions about Farhan's interview. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was just, it was a different, it was something different. Gi- again, Giants don't usually fire managers, but Gabe's just a, he was just not like from the start. And I think the clubhouse, he's not a guy who's going to flip tables in the clubhouse. He's never a guy who's going to go in and interfere with, you know, whatever's going on in the clubhouse. He's not that guy. You know, he's he's someone who's going to let the players kind of police themselves and for a lot of organizations that works, like the manager doesn't have anything to do with like, you know, I think one giant said anonymously, like, oh, how could he have had the clubhouse or how could he lose the clubhouse when he didn't already have it? You know, not saying that that's a bad thing, because right again, you don't need the clubhouse. But in it, on a team where there's a bunch of rookies, the Giants had 12 guys make their debut this year, a bunch of rookies and not like a big core veteran leadership like you once had with Posey, Belt, Crawford. Like, it works for some clubhouses, and this clubhouse, it didn't work, and I think Gabe Kapler kind of got walked all over by the players, but um, that's, yeah, it was a weird tenure, um, and I think the Giants, Bob Melvin's a great choice, by the way, just a few things on him, like, Bay Area guy, um, a a nice mix of, like, the sabermetrics, you know, coming from Oakland, uh, although Oakland, it's been reported that Oakland might not have that same reputation with John Fisher recently, their research and you know analytics department has kind of faltered the last few years. Um, yeah. Um, but a, a guy who's had, had experience with Farhan Zaidi, with the giants organization, he's got the, he's, he's got the kind of the old school giants fans behind him. He's got a lot of the new school giants fans behind him. And I think it's going to be a good fit. Uh, and I don't think that year in San Diego blends with, His history, I think it's going to be fine fit, and uh, if he's a long term fit to finish out his career in San Francisco and the Giants, you know he he works with the young players. I think it will be a fine fine thing for him.
2: Yeah, and you know as you mentioned, it's like hey, like what is really the difference between like let's say Gabe Kapler or Brian Snitker or you know even like uh, I mean you could look at like Brendan Hyde's probably going to win AL Manager of the Year or likely will, uh, and. You know, he like, what's the gap between he, he may be really good for a clubhouse, but like in terms of the decision-making, what does that gap look like? So, you know, I, I think for the giants, obviously the biggest changes are going to come with the on-field results and they were a bottom 10 offense in WRC plus and bottom 10 offense and run scored. So, you know, what are some, or not bottom 10 and run scored? No, they, they weren't my bad. Um, But what do you think are some of the trade targets they could look at this offseason to try to reshape their offense uh, or not even just specific names, but things we'd be looking for, for the giants?
1: Yeah, they need to they need to be stronger I think up the middle. Um and you know, Patrick Bailey and we'll, we'll probably get to him in just a bit, but Bailey's a guy who like came onto the scene and 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 did really well, but second base, you know, you have Tyler Estrada who Tyro Estrada who they got from the Yankees who's been kind of a, a godsend. Uh they got him for practically nothing, what cash or something, and a player to be named later, but he's been a, a really nice player for them and they're they're going to hand Marco Luciano the job at shortstop apparently and we've heard Luciano's name since he was 16 years old uh coming out of the Dominican Republic so and he's got a lot of power uh, a lot of swing and miss too uh but there's a lot of people that think he could be a really really good shortstop at the big league level um and center field's an issue too but yeah the offense is the big thing like the giants could pitch i think we we've seen that and if even if they don't have the pitching they could get it right that's that's not an issue with the giants at this point uh, and and the way they pitch is is kind of interesting to me, but uh, it 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 works a lot of the time. But the the offense is the main thing. They did not hit in the second half. It was a collapse, a classic collapse, um, which Gabe Kapler's teams ironically do a lot in the second half. Um, and uh, they they couldn't knock. They couldn't get the big hit. It seemed like. You know there there are times where they low. I think they had the lowest uh, bases loaded OPS in baseball or something like that. I could be wrong, but no damage in, with runners in scoring position. Um and uh, that just they just didn't have the personnel. And I think in terms of target targets that they could get, there's obviously the dream high ones like the Juan Soto and San Diego would never do that. They just gave up their manager and it's would never work. Juan Soto, every team's gonna look at Juan Soto. Yankees probably too. Um. And uh but but the main thing is, you know, the the players in free agency that the free agent market is not that great. So trade is like kind of where you gotta go. And when Farhan Zaidi took over, he did not have a great farm system, and the farm system was full of a bunch of like very unathletic white guys, like the Christian Arroyos, the uh <laughs> it, it was they had a type for a long time, like the Christian Arroyos, the Joe Panics the Andrew Susacks, <laughs> they all look the same. Um, and 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 this is like a farm system where, um, you know, it, it's gotten better quite a bit and they might be able to pull off like the Arenado trade, the Goldschmidt trade of that capacity, uh, maybe a Bets trade, like something like that. Uh, and and all those teams that compete have made that trade at one point. The Giants have not. Uh, Pete Alonzo, like is, is he an option to fill a void at first base? But then again, there's Wilmer Flores, you got to have in mind. There's a Lamont Wade, you got to have in mind. You know, do you take, do you even like take those guys in mind? Do do you just add and then figure it out later? I mean, there's so much to take into account, but I don't know if there's a specific trade target. Uh, I haven't looked at a lot of the names that are floating out there, but Alonzo's a lot of the, you know, a lot of the fan base kind of has a desire for him. But um, yeah, I mean, I don't know if I have a specific name in mind, but I think trade might be the way to go for a lot of teams because the free agent market is just not that good.
0: We'll we'll get to trade talk in just a second, but kind of you know, you hinted at that they, they can pitch really, really well. That that's always been a Giants thing. I mean, as you talked about kind of the the early 2010s teams, those those teams were built on dynamic pitching. But there's gonna be some changes in the pitching department. Uh Brian Bannister has already left to Chicago. Um, there are some rumors that Andrew Bailey, the pitching coach, might be on his way out too. Um Craig Breslow obviously just became the President of Baseball Operations with the Red Sox. They needed pitching coach. Bailey did play there. Breslow and Bailey are known to be close, so could see a potential move there. You know, who are some names that could be taking over in these roles for the Giants and kind of stability to this organization that has, as you said, seen a lot of success on the mound?
1: Yeah, and one thing about like Gabe Kapler's tenure, one thing that has been positive is the coaching staff. Like the coaching staff, maybe not the hitting coaches. You know, people have been calling for their heads for a little bit, and um, but but the pitching side of things has been such an advancement, and it's carried like the the success from the early 2010s, like you mentioned, like that brand of baseball has carried over in a much different way, in a much more unique way. Like the Giants took Kevin Gosman and turned him into a multi-year, you know, got him a multi-year deal. Giants took Drew Pomeranz. Multi-year deal. Giants took um Drew Smiley, who barely even pitched for them, multi-year deal. Uh rodon multi-year deal. I mean, the list goes on and on. And, you know, uh Gosman's probably the one that got away if we're being honest, but they've they could find those guys. And I think maybe they've gotten a little too cute with that, right? And they think that they could do it with everybody. And you know, Ross Stripling came in and didn't have a good year. Sean for a large part of the year wasn't wasn't good. Um, and I think if if there's one criticism of the pitching side, it would be that they feel that they could do it with everybody with different types of pitching profiles. And it's not the case. Right. Um, and as for Bailey, you know, Bailey's been Bailey and ba- Bannister is well documented in, in baseball, like he's known to be kind of a transformative figure and. Um, you know, I kind of see him as a guy who's going to go to organization. He's going to end up with all th- 30 organizations at this point. Like he's someone who's going to bounce around, share his philosophy and then get out of town. And this front office job with the White Sox might be that, um, again, transformative figure really is. And, um, I, I, you know, I think the um, the the thing is he was director of pitching. And I don't know if that's a position you necessarily replace. And Bailey preferred, according to Susan Slusser, who also knows Bailey with their time, covering the A's sounds like Boston like you said is a good fit for him in terms of who's going to replace him, like there's been names thrown out there at who's going to be a carryover on on Bob Melvin's staff sounds like Kai Correa might be coming back Mark Hallberg might be coming back possibly and Alyssa Nacken, who became the first woman or first known woman to interview uh sounds like she might be coming back um and none of those got none of those people are pitching you know pitcher pitching gurus. Uh, So we don't know what the pitching side is going to look like. Um, Ryan Vogelsong's name was floated out there by Susan Susser. And uh, he's a guy who has been in the Giants organization as kind of a roving instructor, Uh, but they're going to need someone who depends on like, you know, if if you have a pitching staff right now in the big leagues who do not have a good grasp of the analytics and ways to attack hitters and pitch sequencing and someone who's caught up with the new technology, you're not going to have a fun time like that. Like, even the old school people that I've talked to, like they enjoy the pitching analytics and they enjoyed how there's no fastball counts anymore. And a guy's going to throw a specialty pitch all the time. You know, they appreciate that because they, they're, you know, I feel like if, if anything, that's kind of the side of analytics where the old heads have kind of fallen in love with, like they, you know, Sandy Koufax had this, you know, he would have been even better. Right. Uh, so that information is valuable and it's kind of transformed the Giants organization, but they can't get too cute with it. It doesn't work on everybody and they have to understand that as a front office. But it would be uh, interesting to see who replaces Bailey because I don't think he's coming back to your point.
2: Yeah. And, you know, ultimately, the as you mentioned, with their success with pitching in recent years, they have some really talented young pitchers. Uh, obviously, Kyle Harrison's the first person that comes to mind because, you know, he made, made an exciting major league debut this year has wicked stuff. I'm personally and, and Max can attest to this. I'm a big fan of Keaton Wynn. I uh, love the guy. Uh, so, like, what do you think the workload or roles would look like for some of these young guys uh, for the major league team next year? And, and, you know, how much will they rely on young pitching for to fill out like rotation spots or even bullpen spots?
1: Uh, huge and and Zaidi said I was at his end of the season press conference the post-mortem the the one that you never w- want to have like it's like October 6th and there's a playoff game that night and there's you know a press conference in the middle of the day like you never want to have that press conference and he said that um you know Farhan said that we're not looking to add pitching depth like we, we feel like we have the pitching depth right now with a lot of our young guys. There's some guys in AAA Carson Wisenhunt, like learn his name, look at his changeup. It's amazing. Um, who's coming up soon. There's Mason black in Sacramento. Uh, there's a few guys that are that are on their way up the next wave of giants pitchers. And like you mentioned, the Mason wins and Harrison's of the world, there are some that are already here. And, um, and, and if the giants do add pitching, it's going to be at the top end. Um, and the, the thing about Harrison is that in, and. So if you look at the box score, side note, if you look at the box score of all the Giants affiliates, and I would look every day at at what happened in in Giants world and in the minor leagues, they did not stretch their pitchers ever, ever. Like four innings or like 65 pitches. Nobody went more than that. And a lot of people in the organization, like a lot of people that have been in the organization don't like that because, you know, and then Harrison was on that trajectory, uh, trajectory, right? And he was throwing like three innings, four innings every night. They didn't let him, you know, look at the the lineup, like even second time through the order sometimes. And then he got hurt. They were supposed to bring him up in July, but he had a hamstring injury around the time of the Futures game. He missed that. And then they bring him up and he's going from throwing 60 pitches and four innings. And immediately like his first two starts are like 90 pitches. And like, it's like, what are we doing here? Like, do we have a plan on how to develop this guy? Um, and, 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 Opposing scouts, like they're talking about how it's frustrating for them because they don't get to see the guys that they might want in the trade. Uh, because they're they're just so like not shown. They're they're hidden from from everybody. Um, and, and in Harrison's case, like at some point you have to take the training wheels off. Uh and in terms of workload, like, yeah, you should you should manage him just how like you would any young pitcher with innings uh and in pitch count and all of that. But at the same time, like I think four innings and sixty pitches is way too much of a training wheel thing. So where you got to take them off. And I think Harrison is going to be in the rotation next season. He's going to be a big part of this team, and you got to manage his innings. But you have to be smart in doing it, and you know you have to be realistic and like common sense. Like we we there's a there's a plan and there's a way that teams do this and they manage innings that makes sense. And the Giants have to to use that. As for Keaton Wynn... He's, you know, a country guy who's very strong, throws really hard. I think we've seen him randomly on Sunday night baseball a few times, once or twice, which is funny when guys like that get the start on Sunday night baseball. And he's got a disgusting split. I'm sure Ryan, you've seen it. Disgusting split. He could be a guy who could fill out some innings in the back end. But at the end of the day, the Giants have to commit with their pitching because, you know, it, it seems like the way they're doing it is 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 not really, you know, ideal. Uh, obviously you want to save bullets for the big leagues. I agree with that. But at the same time, like if you're having a guy throw consistently six innings in the minor leagues, and then he comes up and he's thrusted in the 90 pitches each start, like, you know, it's not gonna, it's not gonna be pretty. So you got to kind of prepare guys for, for that. Um, and, and I know Max is a pitching coach. You might have a different ideology. Uh, but I think a lot of people around the giants feel like there's some some mix-up in the way that they're developing pitching. But I think Harrison and, and Wynn are gonna be a big part in it.
0: I actually I, I agree with the frustration. Like if you're only letting a guy go 465, you're not training them properly. Mm-hmm. I think that the ability to go deep into games obviously is being lost, but it's still trainable. Like you yeah. can still teach guys on how to do it and it's better to start early. Listen, if a guy's good at it when they're 19, 20 years old. Just keep moving them up, right? If they're hitting all the you know all the things that you need them to hit, and that they're getting better in the ways that you need them to get better, and they're going deep into games, just call them up. I mean, there's cases where it's happened. Yeah, there's cases where it's happened. Logan Webb uh, did
1: not have a lot of minor league innings, so that there's an argument against me that I just made. Logan Webb, if you look at if you look at Logan Webb's like minor league innings, like he had Tommy John missed time for that, came back, they kind of you know did what they do what you're supposed to do with Tommy John ease him into innings. And then he had a suspension for that one drug. That's like blasphemy that they even suspended for that. They don't even test for it anymore. The one that, um, yeah, that was, that was bogus that like nobody, you just keep testing positive for it for some reason. And like, you know, they don't even test for it. It's good. It's you can't get it anywhere. And it's such small doses, but that's neither here nor there. He got suspended for that. It was a stupid suspension. Um, and, uh, didn't pitch because of that, then came up and has, Kind of, it's been an acquired taste for him to work in the games at the big league level. So maybe that's something they're they're looking at for guys to learn that at the big league level. But um, again, it's not a one size fits all mentality, I'd imagine.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it can be trained, but it, as you said, Logan Webb did lead the league in innings this year, and yep. was was my Cy Young pick. So um, that also bias. He's from uh, Rockland, and that's where my family lives. So
1: I t- I did an article about the scout that found that signed him and Harrison. Uh, his name's Keith Snyder. He covers NorCal um, in Hawaii and some parts of Nevada. And uh, and Harris uh different guy, like Logan Webb, different guy uh, from when Snyder first saw him at Rockland and uh, was not there to go see Logan Webb, but Logan Webb apparently started throwing 94 and got on the radar. And uh, he was a, a four-seam 12-6 guy at that point. Now he's sinker baller, slider changeup. Um, yep. But yeah, it was a fun conversation. Rockland I, represent.
0: I I saw Webb when he was in high school, and I was like, "This guy's gonna be like making to the big leagues. He's so goddamn good." So, I've been a fan since then, and again from my hometown, so I'm I'm a little biased. Um, moving kind of in, in a different direction. Um, well, we've kind of discussed, as you said, you know, even the old school guys like pitching analytics, but fans love to. Blame one thing every time somebody has a bad year. Blame a team whenever they have a bad year. And it's the boogeyman of baseball, as I like to call it, is, is analytics. And it's quick to be blamed. But you and I both know, and Ryan knows as well, the best teams in the sport are heavily driven by data. I mean, though it seems the Astros might be moving away from that, but they don't, they've they had this run entirely backed by data. The Dodgers are very much do everything they do with some sort of data to justify it. The Rays are consistently good with it too. And the Orioles are climbing because of it. How are the giants in that regard in their usage or kind of their methodology with data in comparison to other teams? And is there potential room for improvement there?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, this is something like when Farhan took over, he inherited a very small, you know, analytics department. Uh, and, and, and it's grown significantly. And I think that's a good thing in a lot of ways because it is important to to rely a lot on on data because, uh, you know, for a long time, what we see with the eyes was not able to be measured. And now we can measure it. Well, it was always able to be measured, but just nobody did it. Uh, and, and analytics is such like a vague term. I feel like we've always used analytics. Like, as much as we want to say Bruce Bocci, uh relied on his gut with all those bullpen decisions and the postseason runs, like... Like Javi Lopez didn't come in to face Ryan Howard all those years for like no reason at all. Like there's a reason and the numbers backed it. Uh, and Casey Stengel was a big analytics guy. Billy Martin, you know, Casey Stengel invented invented the pl- uh, platoon, right? Earl Weaver, I mean, Davey Johnson of the world, and um, you know, to a point, Bob Melvin, right? I mean, these people ate up. A lot of a lot of the the philosophies and and when I mentioned earlier about the the all 30 managers managing the game in similar ways the Giants could be an outlier the last few years like they made decisions very aggressively in game and you know for example in 2021 when everything went right they relied a lot on something that they called line change where in the fifth inning if you have a scoring opportunity like there's going to be three pensioners in a row Darren Ruff's going to come off the bench. Lamont Wade Jr. is going to come off the bench. Austin Slater is going to come off the bench all in a row. And you capitalize on that scoring opportunity in the middle of the game. Uh, And there's a downside to that, of course, later in the game, you probably don't have the matchup and you have Austin Slater against a tough righty and you're screwed. So there's some downsides to it. Um, But in terms of as a whole, um, you know, there might be two, you know, uh, such thing as too much numbers i don't know what that would look like um but i think you know it, it i they just didn't have the personnel they just didn't have good players i think that's what it comes down to you, you could blame analytics all you want but at the end of the day two like 107 107 wins had to be managed that way like there's no other way you could do it with that roster and with the roster that gabe kapler's had he could be very successful with a good team like i, I really believe that um but at the same time the again the Giants just didn't have the personnel. When you have two starting pitchers at one point. They a lot of the season they had two starting pitchers, Alex Cobb and Logan Webb. And the rest were bullpen games. Like bullpen games are great. It's unpredictable, like it's it's hard for an opponent to game plan against it. Um but when you're doing it three times three times through a rotation, like it's hard to get fresh arms. Uh, and, and the Giants luckily had a bunch of bulk inning guys in the middle who were basically starters, who probably signed to be starters and you know maybe weren't too thrilled that they were being used as bulk. I know Alex Wood was pissed off by it, and were, it'd be very shocking to see him ever back in the Giants uniform. But uh, Alex Wood, yeah. Um, but they just didn't have the players to do anything significant. And if the Giants had the players, they could maybe sit back a little bit, and you wouldn't even notice the analytics in effect. I'm like uh, the Dodgers had Mookie Betts and Freddie Freeman. They could trot out there every day. The Braves had Olson, Acuna, other guys They could trot out there every single day. If this was a team operated the same, if the Giants were a team operated the same way they're operating now with a few of those boppers, like nobody would, nobody would question the analytics at all. Right. Maybe you have a platoon, you know, here and there, maybe a, a center field platoon, maybe a catching platoon. Um, but the Giants had one at every single position at some point like you need a left-handed hitter that's going to be able to hit lefties and maybe the giants thought it was conforto but towards the end of the year like he started getting pinch hit for against lefties late in the game so it's like they don't have any like main stabilizer to where your roster could work efficiently um cuz sometimes you want your bench guys to be mixed in but not in the 5th inning and you know when you need them most so uh too many moving parts i think I don't think it's too much of like game planning in terms of analytics, but they just don't have good players. Like that's the thing. They just don't have good players to where um, like Houston depends on a lot on analytics and the Dodgers depend on it and the Rays depend on it, but they have good players. The Giants depend on it. They don't have good players. Therefore it gets blamed. I love that. Just not good players. <laughs> not good.
2: Yeah. We, we
0: dealt with the same thing with Yankee fans this year. Yeah.
2: Yeah, sometimes it's a matter of like, hey, like why, I mean, why is it that, you know, we're going to blame information? Because that's what analytics really are. Like you'll ask any coach, ask any organization what analytics are. It's just information, right? Like what a guy's OPS is against lefties. It could be put on, the, it's that's analytics, the same way like the induced vertical break on your fastball uh, is also analytics. It's a very broad term, big generalization. I think, again, the big theme here is go out and get big time players. There is the value to what makes certain guys superstars. Is that right? Like you don't have to platoon them. Like Pete Alonso doesn't have to sit down when there's a big riding on the mound. He'll hit, right? Um, you know, or you mentioned left-handed hitters, right? Like, obviously, like Juan Soto. What makes Juan Soto a superstar is that you don't bench him against lefty; he'll kill lefties too. Um, and I know that this—it's kind of hard to segue from this into my next question because it's not entirely related. But I would say one of the few position players that really broke out this year—not uh, really offensively, but definitely defensively—and Max is and I are big fans of him, and that's Patrick Bailey. Patrick Bailey might be the best defensive catcher in baseball. I mean. He's probably the gold glove favorite and he played, I think, 90-something games this year. So the defensive metrics aren't even like to the full capacity of what he would have been if he would have played full-time. What are some things that you think he can improve on most next season? And what would you say is a skill outside of defense that you're most impressed by this year?
1: Yeah, I think Jeff Passen like has that article where he writes like some of the awards, like his, his awards that he he makes up. and um, And one of them is like most talked about or most like, I forgot what it was, but in he quoted he he had a quote in there from a an a rival scout that said like, "I've seen Yadier Molina, and Patrick Bailey is either on that level or above." Which like, that's probably hyperbole, but he is one of the best defensive catchers I personally ever seen. Um, he is an elite pitch framer. There were questions early on in his minor league career about maybe the attitude and the work ethic, but it seems like he's kind of put those to rest. And he's just an elite defensive catcher. He call he, he running game's great. He's got kind of an interesting way of throwing out runners with the uh kind of a lower three quarter arm angle. Um, he's aggressive with the back picks and with no pickoffs. Like maybe it's something to utilize more of. Um, and it's it's so weird because I remember covering a game one day. I did back to back games one day, and uh, in the Giants game note, it's game notes It said something of the effect of him having like plus you know 13 defensive runs saved behind the plate uh and then he threw a ball in the center field that game and then the next day to like plus 14 defensive runs saved i was like what <laughs> so it's like even when he throws the ball in the center field he's gaining value in some way um at the plate is the big question and i think like In a perfect world, he could be a league average or maybe even just below league average offensive contributor and still put up that value behind the plate and be an effective, like, contributor to your team and a staple. Uh, And I think the Giants for sure have found their catcher of the future. Uh, And he's a switch hitter. He's way better from the left side of the plate. The right side of the plate, like in the minor leagues, it got to the point where there was talk about maybe like he should abandon the right side of the plate. Uh, and then he got up to the big leagues and he started going off from the right side of the plate. He had so much success this year from the right side of the plate that it almost made those people like eat their words about him giving up the right side. And he was shocked by it, too. He's like, "I don't know why this is happening. I'm all of a sudden hitting from the right side. Um But yeah, I think the same like goes for him. The same that goes for him goes for some of the other young position players the Giants have at the plate. And it's kind of, you know, getting your pitch to hit and getting in the deep counts and, uh, you know, making hard contact. And I think Patrick Bailey uh, needs to do more of that, of course, and uh, and take his walks. I think at one point he had one walk in like a lot of play. I don't know what the amount of plate appearances was, and Casey Schmidt had that too. So it's kind of the same trend with Giants position player hitters that are rookies. Luis Matos has a different profile. Luis Matos' contact rate was elite and he didn't strike out he's just not very strong yet um and yeah but for bailey it's going to take some time i think uh and one i think the biggest thing for me to see is what kind of shape he comes in in spring training because he said at the end of the year like i'm getting tired i'm getting tired and that's something that like a lot of baseball people don't like to hear a lot of people maybe in that clubhouse didn't like to hear and um you know him say publicly but if he's feeling tired. You know, it's understandable. Like, you got guys, young players have not played this far into a season when they get up to the big leagues. So uh, I want to see what shape he's in in spring training, and we will assess from there. But I think the
0: Giants have found their catcher in the future because he's really good. We are gigantic fans, Patrick Bailey. He he had a play earlier this year um, where he, like, picked a ball and threw it from that low three-quarter slot and with the pop time on it was like one eight nine on it and i was just like that's that's not that shouldn't be possible like there's no way like he's immensely fun to watch back there behind the dish
1: and it's like easy to see why because like he talked about like you know the backup catchers are so interesting and not saying that bailey's a backup catcher this is a separate point but like a lot of a lot of the backup catchers have been catchers and a lot of catchers, I should say, in general, not just backup catchers, have been catchers for a little bit, right? Posey was a shortstop in college and other, you know, others have played different positions. But Bailey has talked about like going to like a catching coach like early on in his youth. Like, yeah, I, I worked with a catching coach in like, you know, high school. It's like this guy has dedicated his entire life to like trying to figure out how to master the art of catching. So Uh, He's worked at this for a while, and it's finally being seen. I think he won a gold glove, a platinum glove in the minor league. So we've known about it for a while. But, yeah, if he could hit, I mean, he's a different animal. But glad that you guys are big fans because I am too.
0: Yes. One, we'll kind of discuss, we talked about trades and how the free agency market isn't great. But I have seen that the Giants are expected to be kind of contenders for Otani, uh, Yamamoto as well. Uh, Cody Ballinger is a name that has been floated around obviously indeed for center field and he had a good year last year how sustainable that is has been a topic that we have heavily debated but in recent years they've always been bit in on the big names they were in on Bryce Harper they were in on Aaron Judge they sort of signed Carlos Correa but they always seem to end up coming up short why is that and is this the year that things change? It's hard
1: to explain. I think it's very hard to explain, and they've been the ult- the ultimate bridesmaids, like they really have. Like John Lester, like used the term. I think when they were going after John Lester, uh, I think one of the Giants executives said, like, use the term. Yeah, he didn't give us a rose. So, I, and that's kind of been like the the like the philosophy or the not philosophy, but the image that the Giants have had with big free agents. Went after Granky, met with him, didn't get him. Harper, like you could argue that they're closest to Harper, even with Judge and and, Correa, that obviously they
0: offered that insane, like five year, $200 million deal, didn't they? Yeah, they offered. Yeah. Bryce Harper
1: was almost a giant. And then it came down to um, just did he want to hit in that ballpark um, taxes? Like the Giants had a very competitive offer to Bryce Harper. It was going to get done. The Giants brass had met with him in Las Vegas multiple times um, and they were close to that one. But, you know, he wanted to be in Philly. And I think that's another part of it is like the Giants could go out and sign these these players, but free agency is not just a one way street. Um, and and if if the Giants are not offering the amount that they should for some of these players that they're missing, it's inexcusable. It really is. They're a big market. Soon they're probably going to be the only market in that that area uh, if they really are not as you know at this point already, <laughs> uh, but uh they they have to they have to open the checkbooks and and, you know the owner uh one of the owners uh the johnson family and the chairman greg johnson said at the bob melvin press conference like yeah we're our goal is to try and break even like what the hell are you talking like you're an owner of a big league team nobody wants to hear that are you crazy but um that yeah they gotta they they gotta you know otani there's gonna be a lot lot of interest i see a mystery team going in on him i i think a mystery team for him would be texas to be honest with you i would not be shocked by that um and and the the west coast thing i think is a lot of hogwash um otani's gonna go where he feels is the best fit um and and you know yamamoto is a guy that they've been interested in like heavily interested in yamamoto um and to the point where giants i think farhan has traveled to to japan to see yamamoto uh, and he's going to get, he's going to be one of the hot commodities. I think there's going to be a lot of competition. I think their friends down South in Chavez ravine are going to be very heavily in on him. Um, and then, you know, the, uh, the one that I do think, you know, I, if, if I were to pick any free agent that I have confidence in the giants getting, it could be Jung Hoo Lee, uh, who's in Korea, who's, uh, an elite defensive center fielder. Who's, you know, kind of got the, the, the profile that you like as an offensive player in, in Korea. Um, and like him, he's been even more heavily scouted. Like Pete Patilla, who uh, the Giants' general manager has traveled there like three different times. Uh, And and when uh, he played in his final game in Korea, there was like a like a a split screen that went to Pete Patilla in the stands, and it was kind of funny um, that that was the case. But yeah, they and that's big with Bob Melvin too, because the Giants wanted a manager that could recruit free agents, and Bob Melvin has has had history with a lot of, you know, Asian players and being accommodating to the Asian players. And he's managed you Darvish and Haasam Kim in San Diego. And and Kim in San Diego, like, he was the guy that kind of gave Kim, hey, you know, you're our guy. You're going to play every day. And Ichiro in, in Seattle, like, they have a relationship. So he's been successful with a lot of the the players that come from Asia. Um, and maybe that's an attracted uh, a- attractive thing. Uh, and Otani, like a lot of people say that, you know, the giants were second or third in the Otani sweepstakes. So, um, I don't know. I don't know if it's like San Francisco, the vision of San Francisco as like a city. Like, I don't think that has anything to do with it. Cause I think that's every big city, right. To a, to a point. Um, and even if it, if that is the case, like they don't live in San Francisco in the middle of the city, they live in the suburbs. That's yeah. You know, it, So I don't, I don't see why that's something to complain about, but, um, California taxes. But I think the main thing is that the Giants just haven't had something to sell in terms of a future. Like when when you don't have a farm system and you don't have a good team for a long time like they did in 2019, 18, like it's hard to pitch that to a, a free agent and a really good one. Um, you know, hey, we don't really have a direction in terms of a five-year plan. Like I wouldn't want to sign their hell. <laughs> so yeah, I, I think they, they need to build up that credibility. They might have the farm system to do it. Um, but they gotta, they gotta get back to that point.
0: I want to get you out here on one final question. If you think, you know, you said Jung Lee, right? That's the guy that you think they signed. If they walk away with just one guy, which guy would you feel like the best about getting obviously like Otani is Otani, but he's not going to pitch next year, but who would be like, you're like, they should do everything they can to acquire this one guy
1: you know, and I said, I said that they would only get pitching. If it's a top end guy, I might have to say Yamamoto, like it, it, Yamamoto is the guy. And and that would, even if it's just Yamamoto, I think that would be a disappointing offseason still. Cause they didn't address the big thing that we've been talking about the offense, the, the offense full of interchangeable parts who like, they're not just like platoon players. They're platoon players on like bad teams, right? They're platoon players that you would see on bad teams. Like JD Davis, like, so much has been said about his crazy exit velocity numbers, you know, that go back to New York. Um, but missing fastballs down the middle of the plate at the belt, like you can't do it. You you can't do it and be successful. And Giants have a few of those fringe guys. And if they go, if they go with the vision of let's add, but let's also have Lamont Way Jr. and Austin Slater in mind, then you're not going to get anywhere. You have to add and then figure out where everybody's going to play after. And I don't think that there's that one guy. I don't think that this is going to be the year where you finally have a jersey to go buy. Like, right, Logan Webb's the only guy you could go into the dugout store and see, you know, be be confident with your decision. Bailey, maybe he's going to get to that point uh, another year to determine, like, is he really our guy? Um, but Webb's kind of the only guy at this point that you could go in and buy a jersey of. And I don't think anybody out in the free agent market. Like the outfielders ideally is where they need to get. And the reason I mentioned Lee is because who are your alternatives? Cody Bellinger, who I was talking to Eno Saris one day during batting practice, and he's not sold on Cody Bellinger. He thinks a lot of it is fluky. Um, and do you really want to commit, you know, a long-term deal worth two hundred million to Cody Bellinger when prior to this year, he was among the league's worst hitters for the last two years, according to the way he runs Creative Plus and OPS. Uh so that's a gamble. And then the other guys, Teoscar Hernandez, like you know, and, and Lourdes Gurriel Jr. And Chuck Peterson, who's not even an outfielder anymore or shouldn't be an outfielder anymore. It's Conforto if he opts out. Like, it's a bunch of, like, not superstar outfielders that you need. Um, so I don't know if there's that one guy, but if I had to pick it, it might be Yamamoto. And if the Giants do go down that route, maybe it's back to the 2010 teams. Maybe you model your team after, let's stack the pitching side. Let's do kind of a what-can-you-give-me offense type of mentality And let's roll with the young guys. Let's roll with the Casey Schmetz. Let's let's roll with the Luis Matos let's roll with the Bailey's and let's figure out how we're going to score runs, but we know we're going to have the pitching. Maybe they do that, but I don't think there's that one guy, but if there is, it's going to be Amamoto.
0: I do like the, just get good players. Just get them, figure it out after. Yeah, Yeah, completely agree with that. I uh, just go get good players. Well, Steven, thank you very much for joining us here today. Uh, Loved your work. Congratulations again on the Bill King scholarship. Well-deserved. I look forward to the future where hopefully you're covering an MLB team for a very long time. And maybe you'll be on MLB Network one day, you know, doing interviews and stuff like that. If they're still around, who knows? But thank you very much for joining us here today.
1: Thank you guys for having me on, Ryan. Pleasure to meet you, Max. Always good to see you. Um, And uh, it was definitely a blast. And uh, if, if I do somehow... If someone is dumb enough to put me on MLB Network at some point, uh, I'll have you guys like on a panel and we'll we'll, like take over MLB (laughs) now. Uh, We'll take over MLB now and we'll run Brian Kenny away somewhere. if He's not gone already.
2: I don't hate that idea.
0: Yeah. Let's do it.
2: Let's do it. I mean, they have, this is Chris. I mean, Chris Russo is supposed to retire apparently. So, or not, oh, there we go. There might be, might off of be that, an so.
0: opening up uh, here soon. So, yeah. That's well, Stephen, we heard you on
1: Caught Looking. Uh- <laughs> <laughs>
0: perfect. Well, yeah. thank you very much for joining us, Stephen. And uh, we will be right back after this. We are back, Ryan. We were just joined by Steven Risotto, a man of many talents and many occupations. Uh, Really good discussion about the San Francisco Giants here today. I mean, if you are a Giants fan, this is obviously he said a lot of things that probably resonate with you. But if you're not a Giants fan, you probably learned a lot about the organization today.
2: Yeah, no, I, I think uh, one of the big things that I think stuck was just the theme about, hey, you know, they do things from a process standpoint the right way, right? Like in terms of like, how they strategize, all that. But there is a point in time where you can have the right information, the right strategies. But if you don't have the right talent, there's a ceiling, there's a cap as to how good you'll be. And it's funny because, you know, the major league playoffs, I think this year have kind of helped to display that. You know what I mean? Like there is only so far you can go without really good talent. And the Giants at some point in this window have to go out and get that star level talent, right? Like they have to say, all right, At some point, they have to be able to land like a Yoshinobu Yamamoto. Uh, Or, you know, if we want to get crazier, they have to be able to land like a Shohei Otani. The bridesmaid never the bride theme. You know, like that, I think, is the big thing here. Because it's clear, like, you want to tell me that the Giants can't, like they don't scout well or they don't identify certain pitching trends or hitting trends well. I mean, we talked, you know, he mentioned he kind of name-dropped Lamont Wade Jr. there. That's a guy who, you know, you got out of nowhere and has become a really nice addition for you. But when he's one of your two or three best hitters versus like your six hitter, that changes things, you know? Um. So I I think the big theme was the process isn't the problem as in terms of like analytics or strategy as much as it is, you know, hey, we got to at some point Go out and get that star level town. Go out and get that big market, big splash. Make this team better offensively.
0: Yeah, I mean the the thing about the Giants is, as as we said, they they've they've never been given the rose, right? Is what is what Steven said, and that's the thing that's holding them back. Is how much do you want to? As he said, we we talked Gabe Kapler, and you know, kind of the decision to move on from him was how much of it is really his fault if the team's not very good? And that was kind of the sense is that the team just wasn't very good. Just get good players, right? Get good players. Don't worry about the spots and everything and figure it out later. And that's a good mindset. That's what you should do. Just go get good players. And it was interesting as you 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 brought up Greg Johnson's comments of like, well, we're trying to break even. Nobody wants to hear that, right? Like, again, think of what John Middleton says. Who cares about financial flexibility? My legacy needs to be winning. Obviously, you know, as we will discuss on Sunday, um, the Phillies didn't win, but the point remains is like that's the right mindset that the owner should have. And if the Giants' ownership doesn't have that mindset, it's going to be tough. Um, but looking, you know, elsewhere into the conversation, obviously, you know, lots of talks about pitching and everything. You know how it's changing and how very good at it. I did think it was interesting that he said like a lot of even the old school guys really like the pitching numbers. Um, and I'm still kind of curious why, you know, we've, we've had this, con- you and I have had this conversation before and we've talked to other people about it. Of There is just such a big gap on the pitching side of things with the analytics because even the old school guys think it's really valuable versus the hitting side. And it seems once again, that another organization seems to have that difference. I don't know how you address and fix that, but it's another thing that continues to present itself. And I'm curious to see how they go about fixing it. Um, I did think what he said about that there's no one good fix, no one player, like, you know, he mentioned Yamamoto, but they need to get good players. They need to find a way. And that's going to be tough to do. It's not a great free agent market.
2: Yeah, especially on the position player side of the ball. Like the pitching isn't really the issue for the Giants. Now, obviously, again, like this idea of, Just go out and get good players. Like, you you shouldn't have to be like, hey, is Yoshinobu Yamamoto, the 25-year-old superstar from Japan, a fit for the San Francisco Giants? Like, he's a fit for anybody, right? Like, he's a fit for anybody and everybody under the sun. Just go out and get him because he's very good. Um, But, you know, yeah, they need to go out and find ways to either get creative in the trade market or creative in free agency and find ways to allure, you know, really just impact players on the offensive side of the ball. You know, they have, I feel like they have enough Around a potential superstar to make it work, you have Mike yastrzemski you have Tyro Estrada, you have Lamont Wade Jr., you have I know Patrick Bailey really isn't much of a hitter, but he's a he's he's going to be your catcher next year, and I I do he think
0: he could be a good hitter. There's right. some things to work with there. And,
2: even if it's closer to like 90 WRC plus, if that's like your seven, eight or nine hitter, it's not that big of a deal, right? Like I I think people oversell how good your like lineup at different positions have to, has to be. I'm pretty sure the average WRC plus for a fifth hitter was 103. So not saying you should just be league average, but I mean, I think they'll have, if they make the right acquisitions, their five hitter could be better than that. Um, So, you know, with that being said, uh, you know, I just thought it was a really interesting conversation regarding just, you know, the the ability to go out and and get those top little guys and just taking a little bit of a, a look inside the organization and you know kind of shifting gears a little bit here. Max, I feel like every time we have a journalist on, we kind of shift towards like the the day-to-day life or like the objectivity side of things. And I think he made some a really good point about the press box, right? There's no cheering in the press box. There is no jumping up and down, screaming your head off when the team wins or, uh, you know, being like sulking and crying when the team loses. You've got a job to do, right? Like you have to cover the team. It's, it's not, you're not a fan. You are a journalist. And I feel like that is a really good representation uh, of that mindset.
0: I remember the game that he's talking about with the Jack Peterson, three home runs, Mets game. That was a great game, by the way, super fun. Um, and how when he said that Jack Peterson hit the third home run, that he was actually annoyed because, again, he had to rewrite his story. And that was coming from a Giants fan. So props to Steven on that. That's that's a that's a very good skill to learn and everything. And I you know, definitely give him um, credit. He does a really good job of you know, just being like, this is the way I see it and this is the way it is. Um, you know, we had Max Goodman on and he kind of said, like, you're always striving for that objectivity to try and bridge the gap between the team and the, you know, and the fan and everything while also doing, you know, you don't want to be a homer, but, you, you know, you don't want to be making wild accusations as well. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's tough. Um, and yeah, I mean, there are lots and lots of stories about writers sometimes not being always the most objective one way or another. Um, you know, I'm sure many New York fans Can can relate to that um, It is interesting that we have uh, There's another guy who we've had On the podcast and he mentioned you know, Saris who was also on our pod um, That Cody Ballinger Not really A sustainable performance And so there's some skepticism there But he did mention Jung Ho Lee I know uh, some people in baseball who are Very high on him um, Definitely interested there So But it is interesting that, again, like there's a lot of just weird behavior around Bellinger. Because, as you and I have said, it's like we all expect him to get this ungodly contract. And that's a reason that they shouldn't, teams shouldn't be in on him. But what if it's, again, like what if it's just a five year, $120 deal? Then teams should become interested. But the expectation is just like, That's not what's going to happen. And it's interesting to hear another writer kind of be like, yeah, I wouldn't go after Cody Bellinger at his price point.
2: I I have a strong belief that the consensus that people, that teams shouldn't go after him could cause that market to fall into a more reasonable range. But then you also have the Colorado Rockies who could just kind of be like, sure, we, you know, like I'm not saying they even need a center fielder. I mean, I don't know if Brendan Doyle is ever going to hit enough to be a starter, but you know, it really comes down to like, is there going to be an organization that's not particularly well ran that comes in and gives him a big time offer? Because if so, then, yeah, I see that. But I like I don't see the Giants or even the Yankees. Like these are both teams I feel like are in very similar spots in terms of like they clearly need another big bat. Um, And I just don't view them as like, all right, we're going to give one hundred and eighty million dollars to Cody Bellinger because we really need a big bat that doesn't really fit what either of those two teams have historically done regarding players they're not necessarily high on, right? Like, did the did the Giants force themselves to retain Chris Bryant? Did the Yankees force themselves to sign Chris Bryant, right? Like, did uh, you know, if they don't, if you're, I think if an organization doesn't grade a player very highly in terms of offensive metrics or internal data, I don't feel like they're going to bend backwards for media pressure because both of these teams have done things that are wildly unpopular to the media. Um, And it's not like anybody, you know, in the front office has gotten fired for it. So there's that. And he also talked a little bit about managers and like how they can kind of be scapegoats or not kind of, they're usually just scapegoats. Um, And I think, yeah, like, I don't not saying that like you and I can make the decisions in terms of like clubhouse in terms of like trying to, you know, be relatable to players at the major league level. But in terms of like, hey, should uh, this guy come out in the seventh inning, even when his third time through the order splits are terrible and he's at 100 pitches, it's not that hard of a decision. And like, who should you go to? I don't know if there's two lefties out of three coming up in the order, I'm probably going to go to my lefty or, you know, if there's three righties coming up, I'll probably go to a guy who's right-handed and has the best sweeper on the team or something like that. You know what I mean? Or if it's the ninth inning in a one run game and your best is available, your best reliever, right? Like these aren't, not that these aren't decisions that, um, you know, require information, but these aren't decisions that, you know, you expect it takes a genius to make. You just need somebody with a good understanding and feel of the game. So, uh, I don't keep Kappler. I'm not saying that he's clearly like he's a martyr or it is the dumbest thing in the world that they fired him, but I don't think him being fired is going to change much else than there was just someone who had to take the fall for this.
0: I would agree. It's just a matter of Kappler just had to take the fall. As he said, I mean, Farron got just when they signed Melvin, they just extended far So clearly they believe in what he has to say. Um, I thought it was an interesting discussion about managers points. Like if you put all managers in the same situations, generally speaking, you're going to see a lot of overlap. That's probably true. Um, He's mentioned how Kapler might've been an outlier. Also probably true. Um, But I think, you know, you run through a nine inning game, managers will make pretty much like 85 to 90% of the same decisions every single time. Just depends on, you know, matchups and stuff like that. That could get a little bit more interesting, but generally speaking, they're going to make the same things. Uh, I want to end on just kind of a more of a fun note. He has a great voice. Stephen does really, really a tremendous voice for like, he would be great. He's a great podcaster, but like tremendous
2: radio interviewer or like got a TV show. Excellent voice. Yeah, absolutely. And just like in terms of just like being a fun dude, like I think he's just an awesome dude to talk to. Like obviously this is my first time speaking to him. Obviously you two had spoken before Um, yeah. and you were actually on his podcast before. So you've spoken, spoken, not just like spoken like text. Um, So yeah, no, I mean, it, it was an awesome, it was an awesome interview. It was just fun to just kind of talk. And, you know, in, in a sense it, you know, and I kind of, I've kind of always thought of, you know, baseball and the kind of like, the way that we view baseball is always through the lens, especially you and I, like it's through the lens of trying to uh, bridge the gap between like data and just, and how it's viewed in the public sphere and how that's very tough to do. It's hard because most people are kind of quartered into their situations and whatever it may be. Um, And I think Steven just does a really good job of like, yeah, obviously, you know, you want, you know, the way the Giants run things, you know, there are things to critique, there are things to like, whatever it may be, it doesn't come off as, you know, I guess trying to prove a narrative as much as it is just trying to present the information as the information is. You know what I mean? It's trying to just present what actually occurred. And I think that's really important. In a media world that let's be honest with ourselves max hasn't necessarily always been like that, especially in big markets.
0: Yeah, definitely definitely in the big markets. <laughs> wink wink. 100. Um but Ryan, I mean, this was a really, really great interview, really great episode on the San Francisco Giants. I hope, you know, people take something away from this conversation about the organization and, you know, Giants fans feel that their team was talked about in a reasonable manner. Uh, We always try to shoot for objectivity as best as we possibly can and make some jokes along the way. Uh, Thank you very much for listening. Ryan, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Remember to rate, review and subscribe to the podcast. Uh, We will be back on Monday of next week, um, discussing the World Series and how Ryan and I both got it dramatically wrong, but that's okay. Uh, Please enjoy the rest of your week, and uh, we will see you soon.